In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Earlier when we were praying about the resurrection, we were contemplating and considering the reaction of the apostles to this surprising and unexpected revelation of God in the face of a resurrected Jesus. And we, very quickly, but we did try to recall the excitement, uh, the disbelief because of the overwhelming joy at seeing that it was really Jesus. He had come. But even though there was this reaction of belief, they came close and they touched Jesus' hands, they saw his wounds, they renewed their faith and their belief in him. There were others who were having a different reaction. And that very same day, two people, one of them by the name of Cleophas and a friend of his, were leaving Jerusalem. They were walking away on their way to a small village named Emmaus. And they were walking away discouraged, perhaps a little bit confused, but I want to suggest as we try to follow them along that road that we can see in their conversation, in their manner, in their attitude, an image of irritability and tiredness. The kind of irritability and tiredness that I don't think is too foreign for our, from our lives sometimes. I think all of us can relate at some level to experiencing a little bit of irritability, a little bit of tiredness. But we want to see in these two is how that irritability and tiredness comes from losing hope. Losing hope. Cleop and his friend walking and talking, replaying everything that had happened during that weekend, but replaying it with a critical eye. They had expectations, they had an idea of how things should have turned out, where their following Jesus was going to take them and what it was going to involve, and that had all gone in a different direction completely. It wasn't what they had expected. And as a result of that disappointment, as a result of that failure, very naturally, and this is something that I think all of us can relate to, they were retelling the story to try to figure it out. Because normally all of us, whenever something happens that we don't understand, especially something that hurts us or frustrates us, one of the first things we feel is the need to talk about it. Try to make it make sense. We need to retell the story, account for what went wrong. What didn't I see? What did I misinterpret? How can this thing that's hurting me, that's disappointing me, how can it make sense? You know, think about what happens after a relationship comes undone. Whether it's a friendship, whether it's a romantic relationship, when it, 
when it, you know, if it, if it explodes or just kind of unravels, maybe. It's a very understandable reaction to, you know, with a friend or someone who knows us, what happened? And we try to tell the story. We try to make sense of it so that we can have a little bit of peace. As I was thinking and praying about this topic, I, I recalled something that I've tried to recall before, but I can't ever remember the exact source. Remember I was in graduate school and we were studying contemporary poetry. And there was a quote, it wasn't even from a poem, but it was just from the biography of a poet from Eastern Europe. I don't even remember what country, but a poet who in the early days of communism in the country where he was, was interred in a prison camp where there was a lot of intense suffering, people being tortured. Everyone was assuming that they were not going to make it out of there alive. People being subjected to unimaginable horrors. And he told the story that one day he was queuing up for whatever it might have been. You know, these camps, there's interminable queuing going on to get from here to there. And there was a, an older woman who was there by his side and she knew who he was. So he was a very well-known poet in the country. And with despair in her eyes, she looked up at him and said, can you describe this? And knowing what she was asking for more than his ability, he said to her, yes. And then he remarked that he saw her eyes smile as she went forward in the queue. In other words, can you tell the story of what's going on? Can you describe this? Can you make it make sense? And Cleophas and his friend, after, you know, what happened to Jesus on the cross wasn't, you know, kind of a, a, an unfortunate little event. It was heartbreaking. It, it, and it was spiritually... Uh, you know, shattering for them. They believed in Jesus. They felt deceived, betrayed even. And they're trying to talk about the events that happen. And what we need to recognize is that they're doing this, they're walking away from Jerusalem. St. Saint, Saint Luke, when he tells us a story, the two of them are walking away. When they had heard the report of the women who had come back from the empty tomb, it's an important part of this story. They were walking away in despair, even though there was a report of an unexpected event. The tomb was empty. Some women were saying that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, maybe there's a note of chauvinism here as well, that them like, oh, well, you know, typical, you know, those women carrying on in their hysteria or whatever. But maybe even deeper than that, is the way in which when we get discouraged, when we start telling things in a certain way, things that don't fit into the story that we're telling get dismissed. And this can happen to us too, even though we can hear that God is a Father who loves us. People can talk to us about His mercy. We were considering earlier that we celebrate today the solemnity of Christ the King, that Christ is victorious. 
He has overcome everything. Therefore, effort to grow in our Christian life is not walking in a circle, but it is true progress. It makes sense. We can hear that. But to the degree that tiredness and discouragement and disappointment is shaping the way we tell the story about our lives, we might just in practice dismiss that. Just let it kind of go past us. This happens to us too, no matter what we hear, no matter what other others tell us. And as they're talking, as they're going along, even though they heard about news of the resurrection, they decided to leave. As they're going along, we remember how the story unfolds. Jesus appears at their side, casually and normally. There's no CGI, there's no swelling soundtrack in the background. In the middle of the hustle and the, the bustle of, of a country road of people coming in carts and carriages and children running by and dogs barking, in the middle of all of that uh, foot traffic of people traveling in first century Palestine, Jesus is at their side and they don't recognize him. They don't recognize him because he's resurrected now. And as we said earlier, he's still Jesus, but he's not exactly the same as before. And Jesus hears them talk and discuss, and he introduces himself into the conversation. What are you talking about? He says. And what's their first reaction? The first reaction is irritation. What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? He said. Then one of them, whose name was Cleophas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have taken place these days? I think we need to read that line with irritation. Yeah. Like, who the heck are you? Why are you interrupting us? And was your, you know, are you the only one who hasn't heard this? It's interesting to see how a lack of hope makes us irritable and defensive. They don't want to engage. They don't want to open up. They're, they're caught up in the narrative that they're telling. And I'm highlighting this not because I want to, you know, exhort you to not be irritable. But I just think it's good to keep in mind that when we find ourselves irritable, accusing others maybe because they don't understand, because they can't help anyway. Why are they talking to me about this? Just for us to keep in mind, hmm, maybe that irritability isn't just because, you know, having a bad day. Maybe it's that defensiveness, that hypersensitivity that arises when we've given up a little bit. When we give up a little bit, when we kind of throw in the towel, we don't want to hear anything that challenges that sad, despairing version of events. Yeah. Again, I, I mentioned this, I think it's, it's a small point, but in practice, this kind of irritability is actually very effective at keeping people stuck. And it's effective because it closes us off from a different way of thinking and approaching things. 
And, and that irritability also has a sense of self-righteousness in it. You can hear that in Cleophas' voice. Are you the only one? You know? In other words, you're kind of clueless, aren't you? You don't understand what we're going through. How could you ever say anything of interest to us, etc., etc., etc.? But to this irritable reaction, again, as, as he always does, Jesus shows us a reaction of love. And he shows that reaction of love by reacting in patience. Jesus doesn't return like for like. He doesn't snap back or go, you know, take it to another level. He patiently and very calmly asks, what things? What things? Tell me. He draws them out. He gets them talking. They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it was now the third day since these things took place. Some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Do you see how news of the resurrection gets relegated to non-event? How it doesn't penetrate, it doesn't get through, because they are stuck on the but we had hoped. That story of disappointment, that loss of hope, which closes them off from the reality, the reality of the resurrection with which God wants to found their hope on a completely different level, with greater certainty than they ever thought they were going to have before when they were following Jesus as the kind of Messiah that they imagined him to be. But as we hear them saying this, we had hoped, and as they tell the events, if we imagine it in the right way, we can hear their tiredness, the spiritual tiredness that fills the soul when we allow our hope to grow weak. And we could hear that tiredness if, you know, they said, you know, some people heard the tomb was empty. Some people went to go see. Why didn't they go? Why didn't they make the effort to find out for themselves? It's not because they didn't have the time. It's not because they couldn't get there. It was that spiritual tiredness. We had hoped don't have hope anymore. And the, that lack of hope make anything that would take them forward seem, oh, let's just go home. Let's get back to the routine. Let's get back to being distracted. Spiritual tiredness, which is nothing more and nothing less than the tiredness of discouragement. The tiredness that arises in our souls when hope has become pale and weak. Something more that we think about 
rather than something that we actually experience. And this is one of the greatest enemies of our Christian life. This discouragement, this lack of hope that normally manifests itself in how we react to failure and resistance. We had hoped, but. Very recently, Pope Francis, commenting precisely on this scene and on this reaction, says the following. It says, How much sadness, how many defeats, how many failures there are in the lives of every person. Deep down, we are all a little like those two disciples on the road to a mouse. How many times we have hoped in our lives, how many times we have felt like we were one step away from happiness only to find ourselves knocked to the ground, disappointed. But Jesus walks with all people who, discouraged, walk with their heads hung low. And walking with them in a discreet manner, he is able to restore That's what he's been trying to do on this retreat. In a discreet, silent way, coming up to your side and getting you to talk, draw you out what's going on in your life. Tell me your story. How are you seeing it? And in trying to reveal to you his love, greater, richer, and more vast than perhaps you had seen it before to get you to see real reasons for hope. Just as he does with these two disciples, he restores their hope in a very specific way, and it's important for us to consider it. He restores their, restores their hope by opening the scriptures to them. Literally, Jesus begins to tell the story of scripture in a new way. He walks them through the biblical texts they were already familiar with. They knew them. They read them. But Jesus has to tell them how to see it in a new way. Going back to St. Luke's account. Then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Apart from the fact we would love to have had kind of uh, a microphone there <laughs> to get that interpretation, um, what we want to consider is how Jesus is getting them to see the story differently. He tells it in relation to himself, explicitly what St. Luke says. But even more than that, he gets them to see the story as a story that involves them. They're a part of that story. St. Josemaria would have had this wonderful bit of advice for people trying to use the Gospels as a source of prayer. He would say, go to the Gospels to find your life in those pages. 
Now that might sound kind of intentionally mysterious, right? Because you go and read a text that was written 2,000 years ago in Greek, uh, uh, you know, to find my life. Uh, well, what does that literally mean? Well, obviously we shouldn't be overly literal. You know, you're not going to, I won't name anyone here, but you're not going to find your names, you know, as one of the characters. But obviously what Jesus means, excuse me, what St. Jose Maria is trying to get at is that we go to the Gospels to find our life of how I find my purpose, the reason why I'm alive, what God is asking of my life, what it means for me to love, what it means for me to believe, what human happiness involves. That's what I go to the Gospels to find. So when we try to pray with the Gospels, what we're trying to seek is to let Jesus guide us in telling the story differently, the story of our life, the story of my day, the story of the things that are concerning me about my future. You know, that, as we said earlier, that forest of question marks that lies ahead of me. I want to go to prayer to tell the story of my life according to his interpretation, his narrative structure, what's important, what is, what is uh, the turning point, what matters, what doesn't matter. I think all of us have had the experience of hearing two people describe the same event in very different ways, right? It's very typical. She thinks it was an absolute disaster and tells you all the reasons why it was, and this happened, and oh my gosh, and the other. And then maybe he comes along and thinks it was quite successful, went pretty well, and it was a delight, and, and he kind of points out some of the evidence for that, you know? And you kind of hear both and you say, whoa, <laughs> what happened, right? And that's just the way uh, that life is. And, and we know that we see it happen to others. Well, of course it happens to us. And this is why we want to work on and to practice a habit of prayer. When I say a habit of prayer, yes, I am talking about the daily routine of praying for a certain amount of time. But that daily routine is at the service of a deeper habit. And that deeper habit is learning how to see your life as Jesus sees it. What does he value? What is he highlighting and giving importance to? What is he not giving importance to? And I want to try to start learning how to describe and tell the details of my life on the basis of that version not my own self-critical or evaluative version that is based on how my comparing myself to the people around me, for example. Or my just kind of importing kind of the culturally available ideas of success and prestige and beauty and love. It's in that habit of prayer, that practice of learning to see my life, to tell my story as Jesus does, it's in that habit where hope is reborn. It's where hope is forged and strengthened. And precisely in the story of a mouse, these two disciples, Jesus takes them through the scriptures. He tells them the story in a new way. He gets them to see how they're a part of it. Later, after Jesus has revealed himself to the disciples in the breaking of the bread, they remember that moment when Jesus was telling them the story, that moment of prayer, and one of them says, 
Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road? While he was opening the scriptures to us? That burning was the forging of new hope. The action of the Holy Spirit awakening them to a new way of going forward. Father, how can I know if I'm praying or not praying? Think about this. Maybe not so much the burning feeling, although that's great too. But am I walking away from my time of prayer with a new hope? In other words, am I walking away saying, you know, my Christian life, my my obligations, the things that I want to work on and grow in, it's worth it. It's worth it. Now, having said all of this, it's also important that we not lose sight of the fact that Jesus began that conversation that got their hearts burning, that conversation that forged a new hope, That conversation began with Jesus saying, you fools, slow of heart to believe. Now, that can sound kind of rude. (laughs) Maybe we're not used to addressing one another that way. But at the same time, you know, look, the fact is, sometimes the only way to get us out of a funk, to get us out of that disappointment, that irritability, that defensiveness, is a jolt. You fools. Slow to heart. Whoa. Something that that shocks us out of it. And I say this too because it's important that we let ourselves be helped in this way. What I mean by that is that each of us should want to have at least one relationship where there's a person who can tell me what I need to hear, not simply what I want to hear. In other words, a friendship of trust and confidence that's genuine and that's true. And we can foster a relationship like that by appreciating difficult or challenging advice. And we appreciate it by really wanting it, indeed asking for it, And you know what? If you ask for it, you just might get it. (laughs) And the question is, well, what do you do when you get it? And if you get it, it might sting a little bit. Because maybe it is what you needed to hear, but it's not what you wanted to hear. And that's why it's going to sting a little bit. But that sting, that jolt, may be exactly what you need to take you to that more important conversation that only you can have with Jesus Christ himself, where that new hope is forged. To bring you out of that defensiveness, that irritability, but most importantly, out of that spiritual tiredness. There's a lot more things we could say about tiredness, and there's a lot of factors that go on, and where we know them. Our pressure at work, uh, confusion in relationships, constant connectivity to our devices and communication and the list can continue and those are things for us to be aware of and that's not really our focus now just want to consider this deeper spiritual point of why we keep emphasizing and coming back to the importance of this habit of prayer
we've come to the end of our time and there's very little time for us to consider the way this encounter ends. We know how it ends, but let's just mention the way it ends is with the Eucharist. The disciples with Jesus, they uh, have gotten, spent quite a tong- long time talking. It's gotten late, they stop, they come into a, probably an inn or a small house, they sit down at table, and they still haven't recognized who Jesus is, but Jesus takes bread, he blesses it, and he breaks it. That's what Eucharist means. And as he does it, in the very moment they recognize that it's Jesus, in that precise moment he disappears. Jesus is no longer in front of them, the broken bread is. One way of understanding that is that it's not a question of Jesus being coy, you know, playing hide-and-go-seek with them, you know, disappearing once they recognize who it is. But that once he's broken the bread and breasted it, once there's Eucharist, now he's there. His visible presence transfers to the sacramental presence. In other words, he didn't leave. He just transformed the presence. And that's a presence that is available to you and I every day if we want it, whether it's participating in the Mass or whether it's visiting a church or just uh, reaching out to our Lord intentionally as we go by a church on the, the tram or in the car or whatever it may be. But he's there and he has remained with us in the Eucharist so that we can, it can be a little bit easier when we feel that tiredness, when we feel that discouragement, when our heads are hung low, in disappointment, to go and to let Jesus tell us the story in a different way, to talk it out with him so that we might begin again with a renewed hope and therefore a renewed happiness for the life that God is calling us to live. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, My guardian angel, intercede for me.